Before we get started in the podcast, I want to take a second and thank you so much for listening. I also want to tell you that my purpose each time I record is to try and bring you God's Word in a way that makes it interesting and a little easier to understand. I know your time is valuable, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It has been a long, long time since I've recorded anything, and I really appreciate you coming back and listening. Before we get started, let me give you a little backstory around why I chose to do this subject on God's grace and it being spectacular. When I look back at this past year, I think you'll agree with me that it was probably one of the hardest years on almost everybody on this planet. 2021 really hasn't started off to be that much better, but 2020 was something else. And most of us saw enough pain and grief and heartache and fear to last us a lifetime. In a lot of cases, what all of that did to people's faith, what all of that did to people's spiritual well-being was in a word devastating. I watched people that both around me and on TV and in the in the public eye question their faith, walk away from their faith in some cases. And I'll be honest with you, the people I'm talking about were spiritual powerhouses. People I would have never dreamed of would have had any issues whatsoever with their faith. So I asked myself, how could something like that happen to people like them? You know, it's understandable that it happens to people outside of church or outside of the faith. But how does it happen to people that were so strong in their faith in God? And that question kind of brought me to where we are tonight in doing this podcast. And to begin with, I want to ask you to slow down and and think about this question. Have you ever wished that God would give us some sort of progress reports on how we're doing in our walk with him. I mean, wouldn't it be good to know that you've actually improved year over year? I know, like, we have small victories or small setbacks, but there's no real guide or there's no real metric for us to that really tells us how we're doing in our progress. And as humans, we have a fundamental need to know that all the work we're putting into trying to be better is actually worth it. Let me give you an example. I started keto uh, several years ago, and I'm telling you, I couldn't walk by the scale without stepping on it to see how it was doing. Now, I knew it was, I was losing weight, but I still had to know where I was, or I still had to know my progress. Or with that thought process in mind, think about, think about your pastor. Think about the disappointments they deal with. Most of them are probably their own worst critics. And I bet you find them, a lot of them, sitting around on Sunday afternoon wondering if all the work and all the time and preparation that they put into bringing their messages to the people in their church or on their podcast or radio or whatever way they had to bring their message made any difference whatsoever. 
But see, I don't believe pastors are the only ones that experience that kind of disappointment. I think to some degree or another, every Christian on the planet is prone to wondering if living that life of obedience is actually worth it. Think about this. Perhaps on maybe one occasion or another, you've thought, you know, every day I go to work, I, you know, I do what the Bible says. I, I, I do my work as if I'm doing it unto the Lord, but yet I haven't gotten a promotion in years. I haven't gotten that raise that other people are getting in years. Think about this one. We've tried the very best that we possibly could to put Jesus in the center of our marriage, but yet we don't seem to be getting any closer. In fact, we constantly fight and argue all the time. How many of you thought about this? We've done our best to raise up our children in church and teach them the ways of Christ, but they are further away from God now than they ever have been before. They have rebelled against God as if they never knew him. Have you ever thought about this? You had prayed and prayed and prayed and shared the gospel with a friend or a family member or a spouse, but they just don't seem to want anything to do with Christ. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. Does any of those sound familiar? Like, does any of those disappointments sound familiar? If not, I think I can safely tell you to cut the podcast off and go find a different one to listen to because what I'm about to share with you probably won't help. For everyone else, though, I'd ask you to hang in there because what I'm about to tell you I think can help. I think will make a difference because I've thought about it a lot and I believe that one of the main reasons that Christians find themselves with those kind of disappointments is because we have unrealistic expectations. And I'll tell you something else. I think a lot of times it's a church that bears a lot of responsibility for those disappointments or for those unrealistic expectations. And when I say the church, I mean us, the people of the church. Because in our desire to see people commit their lives to Jesus, which by the way, is a pretty good goal for a Christian to have. We sometimes try to sell Christianity, don't we? We sell it by implying that a relationship with Jesus Christ is going to fix every problem that someone has. If you've got an addiction, come to Christ and and he'll take it away. If you're dead broke and, and you can't seem to find your way, come to Christ, he'll take it away. See, we quote Matthew 7, 7 to people and we say, all you have to do is ask and you shall receive. All you have to do is seek and you will find and knock and the door will be open. We tell them how much better their life will be now that they have allowed Christ into it. And you and I both know that's true. Ultimately, that's true. But meanwhile, while we live our lives out here on earth, we also know that Jesus never promised us a rose garden. Jesus never promised us an easy life. In fact, he told us that just the opposite was true. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. It didn't say you might or you may. It said you will have tribulation. But the very next sentence helps you walk through it. 
He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So with that in mind, I want to spend some time looking at some events that took place in the life of a great prophet of Israel. The person we'll discuss was lucky enough to get to participate in what I would consider some of the most spectacular miracles of the Bible. But because of some unrealistic expectations, his disappointment actually developed into depression and he became suicidal. Now I'm talking to you about the prophet Elijah, which you probably have already figured that out. And I think you probably already know his story. What you may not know though, or you might not have thought of, is that even though he was a mighty man of God, he went through the very same things you and I do occasionally. In fact, in James 5.17, it says that Elijah was as human as you and I. Now, the events we're going to focus on happened a little bit later in his ministry when he was probably exhausted, quite frankly. They happened in their beginning in 1 Kings chapter 19. Before I read that account to you, though, let me give you a little background. You know how I am. Most of you know this, but Israel was split into two separate kingdoms, northern and southern, Israel and Judah. You probably also know that while there were kings of Israel who were described as really bad men or kings that disobeyed God, there was one that stood on the top of that hill, Ahab. He topped the list. In 1 Kings 16.33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he was the worst of the worst. Now, when Elijah first appears in the Bible in 1 Kings 17, Israel was in the midst of a drought. And God had brought it upon them because of their disobedience. Verse 2 starts with these very important words. I want you to remember them. Then the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah. The Bible tells us after that, that Elijah obeys the word of the Lord and he goes to Brook Cherith. While he was there, God has the ravens bring him bread and meat and he got to drink from the brook. Then in verse 8, you see those same words again, those very important words again. Then the word of the Lord comes to him saying, and again, Elijah obeys God and goes to Zarephath where he dwells with a widow and her son. Once more, Elijah is taken care of. He is sustained with bread and water that's made available through another miracle that God provided him. If you remember the story, the widow's flour and oil never ran out. Now, while living there, you also probably remember that the widow's son gets sick and dies. But God uses Elijah to raise him back to life. How cool is that? If you move to verse 18, you'll see that while it's worded just a little bit differently, the Bible tells us once again that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And it tells us that God told Elijah that he would send rain to the earth if he would present himself or confront Ahab. Think about how much courage that took to confront the king that was worse than all the other kings. And the Bible says that, once again, Elijah obeyed. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the story. Most everybody is. Elijah and the prophets of Baal 
and Asherah, they get into this type of duel, right? Baal's prophets had a bit of a rough time, though, in spite of all their cries and in spite of them cutting themselves, in spite of them screaming and crying, they could not get their God to come down and consume their sacrifice. But even after Elijah has them pour water on on his altar, not once, not twice, but three different times, 1 Kings 18, 37 and 38 says this, Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and it even licked up the water in the trench. The Bible then says that Elijah had all 450 prophets of Baal killed. Pure courage. He had courage and he had strength. And because the people had turned back to God, even if it proved for just a short amount of time, God brought the rain. Now, after all that he had seen, after all that he had gone gone through, Elijah is pumped and rightfully so. He is so pumped, in fact, that the Bible says that he runs in front of Ahab's chariot the entire 20 miles back to Jezreel. So up to this point, Elijah has seen God work in some spectacular and miraculous ways, hasn't he? Now, I believe that what happens next in the story of Elijah's life could happen to any and all of us. I think that his mountaintop experiences led him to develop some very unrealistic expectations about what God would do for him. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn with me in 1 Kings 19 and follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. 1 Kings 19. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if this by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. He left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. See, I believe that sometimes when everything is going right, We think we have God and his plans all figured out, don't we? We got him all figured out. We know exactly what our next step is, right? See, I get the feeling that Elijah did just that. He had everything going so right for him, he didn't expect anything to go wrong. 
after everything he had just witnessed and everything that had happened in his life, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't Elijah have unrealistic expectations of God? See, I believe that Elijah probably thought that once King Ahab witnessed God's power, that he would go back and set his wife straight. How could he not? How could the king and the people of Israel see what they had just seen and not turn back to God? But that's not what happened, is it? Those proved to be unrealistic expectations, didn't they? Elijah was in for a rude awakening. And instead of turning back to the Lord, Jezebel told Elijah that if he didn't get out of town by the next morning, he was dead. Now I want to point out something you might have missed because I did the first couple times I read through this. There's something missing in that passage I read to you that's probably more important than what's in it. So far I've pointed out three different times where Elijah was acting in response to the word of the Lord. The Bible specifically stated three different times that the word of the Lord came to him. And three different times Elijah did just as he was told. Right? This time though, in the passage that I read you, you didn't hear me read that. You won't find it in your Bible either. The word of the Lord is not mentioned. So the same person who acting on God's word had the courage earlier to stand up to King Ahab, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, all by himself, is now afraid of one queen, albeit a very wicked one. So without consulting God, without getting a word from the Lord, Elijah runs. He leaves Israel and he heads south to Judah where he figures he'll be safe from Jezebel. But just to make sure, he heads a hundred miles south to Beersheba. When he gets there, he still doesn't feel real comfortable. So he leaves his servant there and he heads another day's journey south into the wilderness. Now once he gets close, far enough away to where he feels comfortable, he sits down under a tree, completely exhausted, and he asks God to let him die. Just let me die. Now I want you to think about how ridiculous that is. If Elijah really wanted to die, why didn't he just stay where he was? The woman had already said she would accommodate him on taking care of that. She said, I'll kill you if you're here in the morning. But just like happens in our lives so many times, just when Elijah was at the end of his rope, God's going to teach him a lesson, right? It's a lesson that we would do well to heed. Because we're going to get into times, we're going to have times of discouragement just like he did. We're going to have times of exhaustion just like he did. Write this down. God's grace is spectacular even when it isn't. Now Elijah falls asleep and he's literally touched by an angel. The angel tells him to get up and eat. Once again, as he's done twice before already, God sustains Elijah with water and bread. So Elijah did what most of us do on Sunday afternoons when we're full of the word of God and food. We come home and lay down. We go back to sleep, right? The angel touches him 
a second time. And this time, it's not just any angel. It's the angel of the Lord. Now, the reason I bring that up is that I want you to look it up. I want you to do a little digging on your own. Commentators believe that when the Bible says, when the words are used, the angel of the Lord, that it's not just an angel, that it's Jesus in the Old Testament. But the angel of the Lord or Jesus tells him that he needs to eat again so that he could have enough strength to go the 40 day journey. And it's not really clear if God directs Elijah to Mount Horeb or whether Elijah decided to do it on his own. But what we can know for sure is that what should have taken eight to 10 days actually took 40 days. So the implication is that for some reason unknown to you and I, Elijah wasn't in any great hurry to get there. But after he got there, he sought shelter in a cave. And God asked him this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now it's important to understand what God doesn't ask him. God didn't ask him, why are you here? God didn't ask him, why did you do that? It's as if God is saying, Elijah, now that you're here, talk to me about what you're doing here. Let's walk through that. But like most of us would do, instead of telling God why he was really there, which is obviously fear of the queen, he said he wanted to die. He basically used that occasion to complain and to blame God. See, every day each of us face situations. And we have a choice as how we respond to those situations. We can respond with faith or we can respond with fear. But even if fear takes over and we respond with fear, God still begins a process of bringing us back closer to him. Now see, Elijah claims that he is the only one left in all of Israel who has remained faithful to God. Now we know better than that. But he also says that in spite of all he'd done on God's behalf, that God had failed to turn things around in Israel, that he had failed to straighten out Ahab and his people, and that he had failed to take care of that wicked Jezebel in the way Elijah thought he should have. So God gives Elijah an object lesson that he probably never forgot. God tells Elijah to leave the cave and stand on the mountain before him. Now, you know the story. Once he's out there, God starts the lesson with three spectacular events. A strong wind that tore the mountain, broke rocks into pieces, an earthquake, and a fire. But was God in all of that? He was not, was he? God was not present in the spectacular. Instead, he speaks to Elijah with the sound of a low whisper. The King James Version calls it a still, small voice. I think God was trying to teach Elijah that he can't be sought or he shouldn't be sought in the spectacular. But Elijah was used to God working in spectacular ways, having ravens bring him food at the brook, keeping the widow's flour and oil from ever running out, raising the dead child back to life, bringing fire from heaven and consuming an altar in front of all those prophets of Baal and Asher. It's no wonder he had wrongly assumed that the spectacular was the only way God worked. And when God didn't intervene in a similar spectacular way, I think Elijah figured God was done working with him, so he might as well give up. Isn't that crazy? 
Sometimes God is so close to us that we can feel him breathing on the back of our necks. But we are so stuck in our disappointment and our fear and our feelings that we don't even hear him. We don't obey the most simple commands that he gives us. I think that's what happened to Elijah. And again, his reaction wasn't that much different than ours. See, we're all prone to make that same mistake. We read the Bible and we see all the spectacular ways that God intervened in people's lives. We see or hear about the miracles God works in people around us. And we assume that's what God does. So that's what we pray for. We pray for a supernatural intervention from God. Now, it's no wonder. Like I'm not saying it's wrong that we, we get discouraged when we don't see that same kind of supernatural intervention in our lives. We're human. And I'd like to tell you that once Elijah saw all of that, that he had an aha moment and that he figured everything out. But like us most of the time, that's not what happened, is it? That's not how it went down. After the object lesson that God gave him, God asked him the exact same question that he asked him earlier. What are you doing here, Elijah? Sadly, Elijah answers him with the exact same answer. He repeats everything he had said word for word. Now, by now you'd think God would be sick and tired of Elijah. Seriously, why didn't God interrupt him and say, listen, you've already said that. You're repeating yourself. But the good news for Elijah and the good news for us is that God is very patient. He has proven himself very patient with us. And he does an amazing job at meeting us right where we're at. When he finds us or when he when we find ourselves usually, he always is there to help us find our way back to the truth, find our way back to healing. He helps us find our way back to the courage that we had before. And instead of leaving Elijah in that cave, God responds by giving Elijah new task. He actually gave him three new tasks. He gave him the task of anointing the next king of Syria, anointing the next king of Israel, and he is to anoint Elijah as his successor. Now think about it. None of those tasks are that spectacular. He realized where Elijah was. He knew that he was exhausted. He knew that he was tired, and he didn't ask him to go bring fire down from heaven again. He literally gave him three very unspectacular tasks. But here's the thing. God intervenes one more time in Elijah's life in a very spectacular way, doesn't he? Now, you know the story. The same man who wanted to exit this earth and die in sorrow would not die at all. 2 Kings 11, 2, 11 and 12 tells us that instead he would be taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Talk about grace. He asked to be killed. He asked to die. But instead, God takes him to heaven in a chariot. His entire life, Elijah had witnessed God's grace in action. But like many of us, he rarely recognized it, though it was right in front of his nose. 
He has certainly seen God's grace in his own life in the times where God sustained him with bread and water. He had seen God's grace providing for that widow and her son. He had seen God's grace when he brought that woman's son back to life. He had seen God's grace when he postponed judgment on Israel and their wicked king Ahab. And he had seen God's grace when God gave him a new assignment even after he failed to learn the lesson God was trying to teach him. Some of those manifestations of God's grace was not spectacular at all, and some of them were extremely spectacular. But as we've learned so far, God's grace is spectacular even when it isn't. Nowhere is that more evident than the way God has made it possible for you and I to have a relationship with him. Think about that. From before creation, God had a plan for you and I to be made right with him that is for the most part not spectacular at all. In fact, parts of the plan are downright repulsive. And even though we, just like Elijah, often don't get it, even after God makes it really clear to us, God still pours out his grace to us as undeserving as we are. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 that God didn't wait until we got it right to put his plan into action. That even while we were still in rebellion, God sent his son Jesus to this earth. Jesus' birth here wasn't wasn't very spectacular though, was it? He wasn't born in the rich or the famous. Instead, he was born to a young teenage woman who would have been considered an unwed mother. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn. His birth wasn't announced on Facebook or on the news. The only people that knew he was born was his parents and a few shepherds and stargazers. He grew up in the unremarkable town of of Nazareth. And he learned the carpenter trade from his father Joseph. There was absolutely nothing outwardly remarkable about his life. People actually looked at him and said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Now, he did some pretty spectacular things in his life, didn't he, while he was here on earth? But ultimately, even those things didn't impress a lot of people. And by the time he died, he only had a handful of people following him. Even his death was not that remarkable for those times. Crucifixion, while it was horrible and painful and gruesome, was not that spectacular. And while Jesus' resurrection certainly was spectacular, every other part of God's plan was far from it. And yet, every step of the way, God's grace was spectacular, even when it wasn't. That grace, God's amazing grace, is ultimately the only way that you and I can have victory. That you and I can find victory over the disappointments in our life. Victory over the daily discouragements that we deal with. Victory over our grief or depression. Some of you listening to me now might just be just like Elijah. Maybe you're discouraged or disappointed. Maybe you're depressed or your mind is full of guilt or grief from a lost loved one. Maybe you're in the middle of a situation that seems or feels impossible And you're inclined to believe like Elijah that the only way God can solve your problem is to do something spectacular. Like heal your cancer 
or provide that promotion and raise you need to pay your bills and keep your lights turned on and bring the love back into a marriage that has been long lost or bring your kids back to you. Now, we all know that God is more than capable of doing all those things. But often what we really need, God's grace, it operates in in a much less spectacular way. Perhaps in something as simple as changing our hearts rather than changing our situation or our circumstances. Or maybe he opens our eyes and allows us to see the grace that has been that he's been pouring into our lives all along. Grace is just the ordinary things of life. Now I want to end by adding, asking you to do a couple of very simple things. These things will hopefully help you from not doing what Elijah did and end up missing God's grace. The first thing I want to ask you to do is to always, always focus on listening to God's whispers. See, God speaks to his children in a whisper, which is pretty cool if you think about it. A whisper is something that invokes the idea of intimacy, doesn't it? Listen, don't go walking up to some stranger and whisper in their ear. You're probably going to get slapped. When I whisper something to someone else, it's very often someone I am really close to. My wife, my children, my grandchildren, a very close friend. So the fact that God wants to whisper to us demonstrates in a way just how much he loves us. But like Elijah found, the noise and the chaos and the spectacular of this world that we live in often drowns it out. So I'm asking you to set aside time every single day where you can listen to those whispers. And by the way, most of the time when I hear those whispers, there's two places. I'm either in the Word of God, in a very quiet place in the Word of God, or I'm in somewhere by myself meditating on the word of God. So be honest with yourself. How much time are you devoting to the reading God's word? Because if you're not, that's one of the reasons you're not hearing God talk to you. The second thing I want to ask you to do is slow down and spend time looking for God's grace in the ordinary things of life. Because if you'll look for it, God's grace is all around you. It's all around you in the ordinary things that happen every day. Take the rain, for example. The rain reminds us of how God cares for and sustains his creation. When you see rain, let it remind you of how he sustains you as well. Even though we do absolutely nothing to deserve it. It's grace. Think about something as simple as saying the blessing before you eat. See, when we stop and we pray, We're reminded of God's grace in providing for our needs. The last thing I would tell you is to slow down and look at, think about a child playing in a puddle of mud, right? No cares, zero cares in the world. They don't care about getting muddy or wet. They're just out there having a good time. See, if you can remind yourself of God's grace in that moment, You'll think about the childlike faith it takes and is required, the Bible says, to allow that spectacular and amazing grace into our lives. 
See, if we can begin to slow down and, and just look at the world that way, you'll slowly begin to realize that what I've been saying in this podcast all along is very true. God's grace is spectacular, even when it isn't. Thanks for listening, and God bless you and your family.